Our text this morning is Matthew 21, 1 through 11. This is Matthew's account of the event that we call the triumphal entry of Jesus. And it stands at the beginning of what we refer to as Holy Week or the week of the Passion of Jesus Christ. Uh, Now we gather from the context that Jesus and his disciples have just finished a time of ministry in a region near Jericho. And as they begin to make their way toward Jerusalem, uh, a large crowd has begun to gather and follow them. So please stand for the reading of God's word from Matthew 21 beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. As the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the life and the passion of Jesus Christ. Thank you that we, this morning, can spend a few minutes in your word. All scripture is breathed out by you, and it's profitable for us. We thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, yesterday I spent the day reading the four gospel accounts of this event in the life of our Lord. The account of Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, it appears in Matthew 21, in Mark 11, in Luke 19, and in John 12. And as often as the case, we get a fuller view of the event by looking at it in each gospel. This morning, I want to do four things. First, I want to retell this story, filling in some of the details from the other accounts. And after that, I want us to consider three aspects to this account, this event, the significance of the event, why the people missed this significance, and how we can grab a hold of it. Three things, the significance of this event, why the people missed its significance, and how we can grab a hold of it. So first, the story. At the end of Matthew 20, we read that Jesus was leaving Jericho to head toward Jerusalem, and a great crowd began to follow him. And on his way, he healed two blind men. And once healed, apparently they joined the crowd. And they followed Jesus to the small villages of Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives stood to the east of Jerusalem. And Bethany and this small village, Bethphage, were were 
there on the mount. And once they arrived, Jesus sent two of his disciples into one of these villages to get a donkey and her colt, which Jesus said they would find tied up. He tells the two disciples, untie them and bring them to me. He says, now if anybody questions why you're taking the animals, just tell them the Lord has need of them and he's going to send them back when he's finished with them. So they go, they find the animals tied up just as Jesus described and they begin to untie them and sure enough, what happens? Somebody says, what are you doing? (laughs) Why are you untying these? And, And they say, the Lord needs them. And they say, okay, go ahead, take. I'm not sure this would go so well today. I mean, imagine the Lord says, go to Northgate Mall parking lot, and there you will find a candy apple red 67 Mustang. It's unlocked. The keys are in it. Start it up. Let it breathe a little. And then bring it to me. Now, the owner comes out of Chicago Pizza and says, why are you taking my car? Listen, you can respond with, the Lord hath need of it, but you can tell that to the judge. Because there's going to be a problem. You see, in our day, we call this a felony. (laughs) But you've got to understand, Jesus is not doing anything wrong here. In fact, on two different levels, Jesus has every right to take these creatures and keep them if he wants to. First, on a human level, in those days, the king had the right to commandeer anything he needed for his purposes, especially for the nation. And as the one who's about to be revealed, the true king coming to Zion, Jesus had the human kingly right to employ these two animals to his service. But to an even greater degree, they're his, right? Psalm 50, the Lord tells Israel, every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. And that includes the Mount of Olives. And anything up there. As the creator himself, Jesus had the right to employ these creatures for holy use. And when the disciples answer, the Lord has need of them, that's good enough for those witnessing this untying. So they bring the animals to Jesus and the disciples, they, they take off their own cloaks and they lay them on the animals as saddles. Apparently they don't know which of the animals Jesus is going to ride, so they just put the cloaks on both of them. Now, the, only, the other gospel writers, you'll notice if you read this, they only mention the colt, probably because that's the one Jesus ends up riding. And Luke tells us that the disciples actually set Jesus upon the colt. That's a kingly action, to set a king on his throne. Now, if you haven't noticed, the colt is a major character in this story. We'll come back to that. But once Jesus sat on the colt, he, the twelve, the crowd, probably the donkey, they began making their way down the Mount of Olives toward Jerusalem. As they go, the importance of this moment does not completely escape the crowd. They begin laying their cloaks and palm branches, much like the ones that you have in your hands now, on the road before Jesus and the colt, which is carrying. And they begin shouting, just as we did, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, Hosanna to the Son of David. And others cried out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
<clears throat> Friends, in short, Jesus is creating a beautiful, holy ruckus. And throughout his ministry, Jesus had instructed demons not to say who he was. He had told the disciples, don't reveal that I'm the Son of God. No more. Now was the time of coming out of the shadows and the solitary places that Jesus loved to frequent and to let the people acknowledging the coming of the king of Zion. And then something happened. In the midst of all that cacophony and beautiful celebration and probably singing, clapping, maybe tambourines, when the caravan drew near the city and when Jesus saw it, Luke says, Jesus wept over the city. And he said to himself, would that even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. You see, it's not only the city as a whole, but even those who are now shouting praise to God who do not know the things that will make for their peace. And nevertheless, the joyous crowd, it continues to escort Jesus toward Jerusalem. Now at this point it seems that those in the city or around it saw the crowd coming down from the mountain and some went out and they joined it. So now there's Jesus on the colt with the twelve and the crowd coming down the mountain and now another crowd coming up to meet them. And as the crowd entered the city, Matthew tells us the whole city was in an uproar and people began asking, who is this? And those in the crowd replied, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. So Jesus, riding on a colt of a donkey, entered Jerusalem to the praise and exuberant celebration of many people and to the disdain and hatred of the Pharisees. This is the scene that we have before us this morning. But what's the significance of it? That's the first question for us this morning. What's the significance? And many of us have a vague idea of what's going on here, but let's take a few minutes and just see if we can get a better idea of what is happening and why. You see, in some sense, every minute of Jesus' life was lived on the very edge of the triumphal entry. If that seems like a strange statement, let me remind you of a few passages from the New Testament. Before Jesus was even born, the angel Gabriel appeared to Joseph and he told him Mary would bear a son and that he would be named Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. That word Hosanna that the people were shouting, it means save now or maybe save us now or save us we pray. His very name pointing to Hosanna. And Luke tells the angel also uh, announced that God would give Jesus the throne of his father David. And he would rule on it forever. And as Jesus approached the city, what did they cry? Hosanna to the son of David. Countless times. Countless times Jesus himself would tell his disciples that he had to go to Jerusalem to be put to death and then rise on the third day. And in Luke 9.51, Luke writes this. Now, I want you to feel the weight of this verse with me. 
Luke writes, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. He set his face. His mind was bent on Jerusalem from that moment on. And he knew what he had to do to go there. Friends, I want you to see this morning is that this triumphal entry into the city had long been anticipated in the heart of Jesus. As one writer put it, looming over the manger is the shadow of the cross. Jesus lived every minute of his life on the very edge of this moment. But there's more. And I only have time to make one of these connections this morning, but I want to show you quickly some more of the significance of the cult in this story. Jimmy alluded to it earlier. We read a passage um, this morning, and Matthew quotes Zechariah 9. You can look at um, the bulletin, or you can look in your Bible. The heading in my Bible at Zechariah 9 says this. It reads, The coming king of Zion. The prophet writes, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. (laughs) Those are hopeful words, aren't they? Your king is not just coming, he's coming to you. Your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This cult had a big part to play, didn't he? Prophesied possibly even in Genesis 49, though we won't go there. That this king was going to come in peace riding on a colt. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of Isaiah 9, 7, which reads, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. We would have to think that many, if not most of the crowd accompanying Jesus to Jerusalem on this day, knew these words by heart. They saw a coming king of peace riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey, and they cried, Hosanna to the son of David. Let there be peace in the heavens. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. You see, they knew something big was happening. And though their words were right, and in many ways their actions were right, many of their hearts were still wrong. You see, in the final analysis, they missed it. But why? Now, before we get unfairly judgmental of the crowds, as as Jimmy pointed out in our Old Testament reading, there's a lot of victorious speech in this passage. There's a lot of conquering speech in this passage. But there's there's some sort of mm, disconnect too, isn't there? See, in the first part, we see this humble king riding in on a donkey, and later we see a conquering king. So let's don't be too hard on them, okay? 
But let's just take a quick inventory of who got the meaning and full significance of this moment, okay? Let's start with the crowds. Did the crowds understand the meaning of this moment? Well, probably not. In John 6, after Jesus has just fed the 5,000, John writes, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. I'm going out on a bit of a limb here, but I think that was the sentiment of the crowd this Palm Sunday, and, and reasonably so. And we have to be careful not to oversimplify this. The hearts of the people that day, they must have been a mixture of countless motives and hopes and dreams and fears. They had seen the many signs that Jesus had performed. He had fed the hungry. He had healed the sick and the lame. Some of them had even been present when he said, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus came out of that tomb. So I think, and so do many others, that this throng of worshipers wanted to see Jesus made king right then and there. But that didn't happen. If you read on in the gospel accounts, you'll see that Jesus did not march to Herod's palace and walk up and seize the throne. Instead, he went to the temple. He turned over some tables, ran the money changers out, made some more enemies. And then you know what he did? He went back up the hill to Bethany for the night. Now that is anticlimactic, isn't it? I don't know how many hours were separated from coming down the mountain with the crowds and then returning to Bethany. It's not what they expected. And what happened to this crowd? I mean, we can't say for sure, but I think that Jesus didn't just, he just didn't meet their expectations. They wanted a Jesus of their own making. They wanted a Jesus who would get with their program. And when he didn't, I think they quietly faded away. And the next time we see a crowd shouting in the presence of Jesus, what are they saying? Crucify. Friends, there is an application point for us here. Do you want Jesus as he really is? Or do you only want a Jesus who gets with your program? Are you, like Jesus, praying to his Father in Gethsemane, willing to say, your will, not my will? Or are you like the crowds? Will you follow Jesus until he fails to meet your expectations? No, sadly, the crowds did not understand the true significance of this moment. But what about the disciples? Surely... (laughs) Surely they understood the significance of this moment. Surely as many times as Jesus had told them that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer and die, they would understand what was about to happen. Actually, no. In fact, the Gospels tell us over and over that though Jesus had plainly told them what kind of suffering he would face, they did not fully understand it until after he had risen. And in their defense, 
the Gospels even say it was hidden from their eyes. As much as they loved him, as much as they had promised to follow him to the death when he was arrested later that week, they scattered and hid, didn't they? And as the jubilant crowd marched down the slopes of all of it, even the twelve missed the true significance of what was happening. Do you know what this means? In some sense, Jesus was alone that day. Think about that for a minute. How could a man surrounded by a praising crowd have felt alone? Only he knew what was happening, didn't he? I know parents can feel this. Parents often have to do what's unpopular and right for their children. Even as the children perhaps go along, perhaps revolt. But it's a very lonely thing to be the only one that knows what has to be done. And I think that day Jesus, in many ways, was alone. He had set his face toward Jerusalem and though he was in the midst of this great multitude singing his praise, he was alone in his mission. He alone had to carry the burden of the work that he had to do and the suffering that lay before him. It's no wonder he put such a premium on prayer, is it? If Jesus wasn't busy, he was praying. we see a glimpse of what this must have been like for our Lord when he saw the city and began to weep. He alone understood the full weight of sin that he would bear. He alone dreaded the wrath of the Father who would have to turn his face away from his Son. Now the crowds and the twelve alike, they failed to comprehend the significance of what was happening that day. And so how can we grab a hold of it? If the crowds and the twelve missed the significance of this event and the week that would follow, how can we avoid the costly mistake of undervaluing the work that Jesus had to do? How can we do it? Listen, I'm not going to say anything profound here. That's good and bad. Repent and believe the gospel. Lean in, especially this week. Lean into this holy week to remember all that Christ has done. And here's how we're going to do it. Let me ask you this question. What would have happened if the crowds had gotten their way? Have you ever thought of this? What would have happened if Jesus, rather than retiring at Bethany once more for the evening, had in fact led the crowds to the house of Herod? What if he had walked in, taken the scepter from the king, and sat immediately as the one enthroned on the throne of David? You and I would die in our sin. Friends, that's the significance of this moment. We would die in our sin if Jesus had not done exactly what he did this week. And when Jesus was praying 
in Gethsemane, even knowing full well the work he had to do, still he asked his father, if there is any other way that this cup can pass for me and save your people, let it be. And the answer from the father was, there's no other way. There had to be a cross. We grab hold of the significance of Palm Sunday when and only when we grab hold of the significance of the Friday that followed. God so loved the world that he gave, God gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Why did Jesus set his face like flint toward Jerusalem on a mission that only he, the Father, and the Spirit understood because of his love for his people? Only on a hill outside the city could Christ do the work that would bring you and me into the presence of God. God so loved the world that he sent his Son to die that we may live. Meditate on that day and night and you will never miss the significance of this day. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And on the Friday that followed, Jesus was lifted up on the cross. And he took the penalty for our sin and he died. And next Sunday, Next Sunday, we will celebrate, even more than we do this morning, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The conquering of death and hell and the devil. And even now, I proclaim it to you. Hear this good news. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And his face face was set to Jerusalem. And he did just that. Don't miss it and don't miss him. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you said, oh, that the, the, the son set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem to do a work set out before the foundation of the world to rescue those from the waterless pit, just as Zechariah saw. Lord, thank you for your love, your grace, your determination to save your people. We praise you and we say, Hosanna to the Son of David. Amen.